This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you been struggling lately? Maybe you're having trouble sleeping, difficulty with the relationship, or just suffering from low self-esteem. If so, then BetterHelp wants to help you. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and to help you. You get to talk to your therapist in a private, online environment at your convenience. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000-plus therapist network, and they give you access to help that may not be available in your area. You just need to fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Join the 2 million-plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. And there's a special offer to Nowhere to Be Found listeners. You'll get 10% off of your first month, but only if you go through the link or type in betterhelp.com slash ntbf for Nowhere to Be Found. That's better betterhelp.com slash ntbf. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. And you can find the link in our show notes and on our website, nowheretobefoundpodcast.com. Tonight's episode is brought to you by Oregon Wild Rice. Oregon Wild Rice is a local company that we are so excited to be partnering with. The Langdon family have been farming in Harrisburg for approximately 120 years. They started out as a farm to sustain their growing family and then grew into commercial farming. 80 years ago, they acquired 140 acres with heavy clay soil. For 75 years, the family had drained the land and tried to grow grass seed with varying results. Five years ago, they decided to stop fighting the land. They moved some dirt, built berms on two sides, and within three days, they had rice paddies. So far, they have not had to add water to the paddies. Oregon wild rice grows in 100% Oregon rain. I love that this rice is locally grown and sustained right here in Harrisburg. It's important to know where your food comes from these days. Here in the Pacific Northwest, it doesn't get any better than Oregon wild rice. I got to try their wild rice recently, and I can honestly say that I've never seen rice like this before. I'm genuinely a picky eater and greet most foods with skepticism, but I was blown away. Their rice is a healthy, delicious, better choice side dish. So thanks again to Oregon Wild Rice for sponsoring tonight's episode. I'll post the link to their website in our show notes so you can check them out. Previously on Nowhere to Be Found. We love people unconditionally. It didn't matter what you looked like, what kind of background you came from. He gave everybody a chance. Tina called. She called me to ask if I'd heard from him because she hadn't heard from him in a while. He was making huge steps in the right direction and had a lot of potential and he had a lot of dreams that he was making into a reality. I'm your host, Amanda Papineau, and this is nowhere to be found. (music) 
For tonight's episode, I knew I wanted to speak to some people who were not personally connected to Michael or the Brysons, but who had some insight on the search process and what that's like. First, we're going to hear from Randy, the drone guy, who before August 5th had never met Michael or anyone involved in this case. He happened to see a Facebook post that they were looking for someone who owned a drone who'd be willing to aid in the search for Michael during the early days up at Hobo. He had no idea how intertwined his life would become with this case. Then we'll hear my interview with Carlton, a man from Washington who's organized his own private search and rescue team for several missing persons cases in the Pacific Northwest. My name is Randy James. I'm the drone guy. A friend of mine had posted on Facebook a couple of days after he had gone missing, I believe. And I was out in College Grove, uh, I believe the day or two days before he went missing. I kept seeing posts that they needed a drone person. So I just felt obligated to go out there. And so you really, you did not know them at all. You literally just, same as me, saw this on Facebook, and I did not know that. Exactly. Yeah, I didn't know them prior to any of this. wasn't really familiar with that area. Never knew it existed. Yeah, I told Parrish when we uh, when we went out to Hobo, I was like, you know, if we were here for different circumstances, this is probably the coolest campsite I've ever seen. But it sucks that it, ha- you know, it's obviously completely tainted now, and I just that place gives me the chills. Yeah, I don't like that area anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, it sucks. I mean, because like I said, it's it's gorgeous, and it, you know, it's very like Oregonian feeling. You know, like very oh, yeah. mossy creeks. But yeah, it's it's the vibe there is uh, it's not fun. I was by myself doing the searches. I'd find a spot to take off because, you know, it's raining out there. In the summertime, it's the canopy is so thick, the trees and the branches and everything are, you know, covering the road up pretty much so you can't take off vertical. It's really hard to find a good place to take off with all the trees. So basically, you would just go up there and fly around for hours just looking for him. Yeah. Yeah. uh, So when I got up there, um, the very first day, I went to Hobo, and there's a ton of people there, of course. Mm-hmm. Cars parked all alongside the roads on both sides, people in the campgrounds. Do you know what day it was? Was it the first, like it was the 5th, the day he went missing? I went out there was, I believe, the 7th or 8th. 7th and 8th, okay. So it was still really high traffic people coming out there, new people coming out there. Yeah, that's um, kind of when it started to grab some traction. It sounded like they had, you know, close to 200 people or something that, that third day. Oh my gosh. Who did you kind of team up with? Like, did you just walk up with your drone and say, like, hey, I'm here, who, who somebody I tell me? I, I walked up, I believe Trent was the first guy I talked to. Okay. And then said, hey, I'm here with a drone. And I think Parrish came up to me and started talking to me. And uh, I asked, I believe, uh, where should I go? And um, I believe I went up the first time up uh, 2263. If you're familiar with 2263, that is the road that's across from where his stepfoot found recently. Okay, so west, uh, just a little bit farther west. Barely a mile, barely a mile west of Hobo. Okay, okay. Yeah, I went up that road, and that's where I did my first flight. How I well are you able to dark. see, are, are you able to see the ground fairly well uh, from, I mean, because you have to be up above the canopy, you said, right? So are you, how, what's the visibility yeah. like? Jesus, it's actually kind of horrible. Yeah, I bet. Um, unless 
you really know what you're looking for, it's really hard to spot anything. Right. Even a person like me, I think my flight level was about 120 to 150 feet. Okay. Um, I'll try to get as low as I can above the trees because those help. That's how tall the trees are. They're super tall. Right. Right. And then you got the you got you know the ravines that shift down into a V, so you can kind of fly down the middle, but you still got all those branches that are you know. Right. Yeah, that's hazardous. So you got to fly above those two, and it just makes it pretty difficult. How how far can your drone go from you? Uh, the one I got now that the group helped help pay for mm-hmm. uh, that one goes quite a while, quite a ways um, this one is a it's actually a search and rescue drone um, it has zoom feature uh, thermal flare yeah it can go seven miles supposedly I haven't gone that far no you wouldn't need to far. you wouldn't need to yeah but it's a really good drone uh, the one I had before was more of a cinematic drone okay um, it had a 360 camera on it and 4K, so I could shoot in 4K and get really good um, visual of where I'm at, but the really skinny thing is pretty difficult. So what happened to that and drone? That, that drone got stuck in a tree. Uh, me, Parrish, and uh, a couple other people were up there that day, and uh, we're actually doing a search and a drone recovery for somebody else. Oh, okay. And I was flying below the trees and the sensor on my drone says a branch and it backed itself up and hit the branch behind it and just sat there. Oh no. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so we got some tree people out there and it fell out of the tree and shattered. Oh no. Yeah. So you guys got all the you had but, the trouble of getting the guys out there who actually got up there and climbed climbed this tree to retrieve it and then it shattered? Um we were trying to catch it from the bottom. Yeah. With what, like a towel? With his hands. He was underneath the tree. One guy was underneath. Yeah, they posted the video on the Bryson page. Oh, I'll have to look at that. I I missed that. Yeah, I would have gone maybe with like a towel approach. Like, you know, two people holding a towel to have some give or something. You know, we thought about doing that, but if you knew how steep it was in the loose rocks. Is it? Okay. yeah, it is horrible down there. Jeez. Okay, but so now you got a search and rescue one, and so how much of your uh, how much of your footage were you shooting on that one? Is that pretty new? Uh, when did I get that drone? Yeah, like September, I believe. Oh, okay. So a good a good amount of your um, searching has been with this better search and rescue drone. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, it has a eight times zoom feature to it. Uh, speakerphone, spotlights. It's a super nice drone. So, as of recently, we know that his stuff was found, you know, right off that road. So, did you go back at all and look at the footage to see if that was there? I did fly over the area, but where they were found, it was so green, you wouldn't see them. And, yeah, it was at, at like, a base of a tree or kind of underneath a a tree, right? Or a bush? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. If you look back to my footage, the water level was literally ankle deep right there. Okay. And uh, where his items were found were, would have been a good maybe 20, 30 feet above the water line in the summertime. So still not really like they tossed, so it's not like they were tossed into the water. They were well above the water. Oh yeah, well above the water line. And even now with it being so high, waist deep, it's still a good 10, 15 feet above the water line. It's so hard to say about how the items got put there, but 
I don't think they were there. It seems strange to me that it would be so close to camp in a place that I feel like has been looked over a dozen yeah. times. Yeah. That's another thing I was going to tell you. Um, I've flown 2263 quite a few times at the base right there because it's an open spot. During the summer camp, and the water was low. Uh, I've searched both sides of the road, um, bit down in those bushes. I looked across the creek, like just normal. That's where your eyes wander across to see if you see anything. Those items would have been probably pretty easy to spot from the road. And me being up there a good 60 times now, back and forth, mm-hmm. and up and down that road hundreds of times, <laughs> uh, yeah. You're, you're, they, they yeah, in your opinion, they were not there. Right. Yeah. Even the trailhead that's up there a good 30 feet or so, uh, where the items were found, um, even if they slid down off the hillside, mm-hmm. no way. There's no way. Uh, you got too many down trees, too many bushes, too much obstacles. Mm-hmm. Were they just right on top, or were they buried? I mean, because in August, I was thinking about this, like, okay, so August, then we have fall, so all the leaves are going to fall down. And then now we have winter, which means there's, like, it's hard-packed ground, decayed leaves. Are they just sitting right on top here? Um, I didn't see them physically with my eyes. Um, I was told uh, that they were kind of a little bit in the mud. In the mud, okay. So, that makes uh, more they, sense. They had a little bit of moss growing on it. Okay, so that would fit. that would fit for them to be at least there for, you know... Weeks a couple months. or months, right? Yeah, not not yeah, placed yeah. yesterday, type of thing. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, that is by far, obviously, yeah, uh, it's, the, a mystery. it's another mystery inside of this mystery. But I was just um, yeah. so happy that something new happened for them, yeah, and well, for everybody, but especially you know, to be searching all this time and come up empty-handed yeah. over and over. I mean, I'm sure you oh, yeah. you are uh, very familiar with that disappointment with them. Yes. And, um, yeah, I'm glad that something surfaced that made them feel reassured, like, okay, it was, you know, we're getting somewhere. Yeah. That, that's... And, and I talked to Parrish. Um, he told me. Mm-hmm. And he says, don't tell anyone, you know, just keep it quiet for now. And mm-hmm. then the rescue is going to be out there. And, uh want to know if I can go out there and fly a drone around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what we did. Me and uh, uh, Brett went out there. He went down to Lund and crossed the bridge and walked Lund down to where the items were found through the trail. And I parked directly across from where the items were found and took off and flew around that area and try to see if I can see anything like further up in the trees, maybe an animal dragged mm-hmm. down, I'm trying to see if maybe he might have been up that way. But yeah, we did that for a good solid couple hours, you know, mm-hmm. searching the area. Brett climbed down that hillside and looked behind the fallen trees and how the roots are all up. Uh, so they, uh, when the trees fall over, the, the roots are all up and they're in a big old hole, you know. Mm-hmm. So he went down and checked those. He went further down the trail and looked at some spots. And it was a long day that day. And That's then, a lot. Yeah. So we, me and Trey went back uh, after such a rescue had done their thing because we didn't want to go interfere. I didn't want to go out and fly that day in search and rescue were out there. How come? I didn't want to interfere with them. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. The one where uh, drone rules not supposed to fly around search and rescue as recreational or uh, you know, a pilot you have to get permission. But anyway, but me and Trey walked 
from Blonde all the way down to Cedar Campground mm-hmm. on the trail and searched areas that I marked on the GPS through the drone because my drone has, I've put the setting on to the actual footage of my GPS coordinates. Oh, okay. So wherever my drone is, it gives the coordinates. So if I see something, all I can do is pause it and read the number off and I mark it on my Onyx app. So if I think a branch looks like an arm or a branch looks like a leg or something like that, pin it and we'll go back and check it. That's what we did that day. Throughout this whole thing, um, have you talked to quite a few people who were just kind of up in the area, or did you talk to any any of the campers? Or oh, I talked to a ton of people. Um, so I've talked to miners, friends of miners. Um, I've talked to some of the camp family members, just other searchers. So for the miners, um, I keep hearing that the miners are like, I feel like they kind of get a bad reputation for. Uh, They've been extremely nice to me. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, who else did you um, talk to? Anybody interesting or have anybody give you any interesting information? Uh, well, Donovan, uh, for one, which he was out with me and Parrish doing searches quite a bit. And the funny thing is I didn't even know he was a party goer. Oh, um, really? Yeah, when my drone got stuck up in the tree, he came out to help retrieve it. And oh. uh, he jumped in my vehicle. And uh, I was asking how he knows Michael and stuff like that, and that they grew up together and whatnot. And uh, he's like, yeah, I was at the party. I was like, oh. I kind of like, oh, I didn't know that. Recently, he just found out he was a party girl. I was like, oh, okay, well, that's cool that he's helping searching because, honestly, I think maybe the first few days when the camps were set up out there, Parrish's trailer that they had all set up, I believe some of the party goers helped out for a while before they all left, but... I haven't seen any other party goer up there in searching. Besides Donovan, Donovan helped. Yeah, Donovan was there for 19 days, I think. He he yeah, he stayed exactly. up there for yeah, a long time. Right, and I honestly didn't know he was a party goer. I seen him sitting at the camp. When I get back from flying, he was still there. And uh, I thought he was actually a family member uh, of yeah. Parrish and Tina. Were the buses still there when you got there? Uh, they weren't. They no. were not? Okay. No. So how many times do you think you've been out there looking? From start to now, a good 50, 60 times. Wow. That's amazing. Quite a bit. Would you say you're now friends? I mean, for me, at least the first time I met met the Brysons, I mean, they're those people that you could just instantly be friends with. Oh, they're yeah. so easy. <laughs> they're... Yeah. yeah, I can definitely call them friends. They're, they're great people. They're really easy to get along with, easy to be around. Yep, um, totally. You know, Very welcoming. Forward. So they, they, they made me feel welcome. They made me dinner as I can. And I charged my batteries in their trailer. They would turn off the generator so I could charge up the batteries for the drone so I can go back out. And I got to give a shout out to everybody in the group and everybody who's listening. When my drone crashed, Paris and all of them put together a fund to give me a new drone. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you now that that drone's amazing and it's been getting us use. I'm just not posting the videos because I kind of had a little suspicion of uh, Michael got moved. Okay. And uh, okay. I stopped posting videos of where I was searching. So you've, you've probably learned quite a bit of uh, of how that all works, like search and rescue works and taking grids and stuff now, huh? A little backstory on me. When I was 17, I worked for a company building trails out of Oregon in Washington. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was a five-week five week summer program, pretty much. Um, you're, you hike out and you camp out and then you go to during the day and then you go back to camp. Well, they teach you the maps. They teach you 
you know, couple maps and uh, just plants and just all sorts of little educational stuff while you're out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think on week three, one of the girls went off to go pee, and she didn't come back. Uh-oh. And uh, the crew leader asked for a volunteer, and I raised my hand, and uh, we found a girl about three or four hours later. Uh, she was about two miles away from the camp, um, sitting uh, along a tree, and uh, yeah, that was my first search. Wow. And then I just felt obligated to go out on this one because it's so close to yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So I've got that new interest of in doing searching, like in the future. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I learned a lot, not just with the drone, but what to look for, stuff like that. I think it's really interesting, too, and it's uh, it's extremely motivating work. I, I forget her name, but is it the Fauna Frey? Oh, yeah, Fauna. Mm-hmm. They uh, reached out to me also a while back to help out with some searching along cliff sides, and I just didn't have the time to go out there. I was really, like, dedicated to this. Sure. Like one, and I didn't pull myself off to go down there and help. I felt yeah. bad. It's just uh, like every day we're getting closer and closer with Michael. And I was like, well, I've got to be out there and check this area. I was like, because this area hasn't been checked. Well, oh, let me go out here real quick. You might be right here. There's always that hope. You might be right here. Right. You know, just like, one more quick so, search. Yeah, exactly. And that quick search turns into four or five hours. You're like, okay, well, I need to go home or take a break for a little bit and kind of look at the map again and try to find that area. Where would you go if you were really lost out there? I try to organize a few searches um, here and there. Mm-hmm. I like the Dorena Lake area or Champion area. Um, and I talk to quite a few people that have really a strong background in searching. I uh, talk to this one lady. She uses horses and she also has a cadaver dog. Okay. And I believe she mentioned that her dog was at 100% finding someone. And oh. it's always been within the first mile or two. Wow. Of where that person was. Yeah, I believe that, especially yeah. with the terrain. The other thing, too, is, like, also with all the stories of foul play, too, mm-hmm. that has been brought up. I also try to keep a more of an open mind, like, maybe he really did wander off. Kind of research the maps and find the easiest route mm-hmm. going somewhere. Yeah. And that, those were the areas of searching. And I, probably with all the other volunteers that have gone out, they probably did the same thing. What's the easiest route? And uh, if you're a lost, where would you go? Would you go up the river, down the river, downhill? And in my opinion, I would go downhill. Always downhill. But that was my thought too: is who in their right mind would try and climb up like a cliffside? Right? Why right. would you? Why would you do that? That cliff, or the islands were found. There's no way to climb up that. Right. So but. the road thing. I mean, so the last guy I talked to uh, was Kieran. And Kieran says that he drove like a half a mile to a quarter mile or something like that in either direction. And um, in 20 minutes, you know, 20 minutes after he left. And I was thinking, that's actually not too far. I could easily walk way farther than that. I mean, you'd be really walking. You'd be over a mile. Yeah. Because, yeah, because you could run a mile in eight minutes. Well, that's true. And especially with ketamine in the mix, um, it sounds like you're not really moving too fast if you're on ketamine. And I did listen to the podcast that you just posted on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And that has really been in my mind a lot lately because of the fact that they said after 20 minutes after they left, they went searching for them. Mm-hmm. And I trace. Well, I can tell you now, if say if you were just walking a straight line 20 minutes going towards Lund, 
that want to go down to the river, the only way, the easiest route to get to the river would be stopping into the campground. Anywhere off the road is, it's, it's going to be hell. So you're saying like if he went out of the campground, took a left and just walked straight for 20 minutes down closer towards town, right? Yeah. To get to the river, the best way to get to the river would have been from the campground. And how far is, and Lund is? Lund About 20 minutes. About a 20 minute walk? Hmm. Bree had, yeah, it is. I think I was gonna say. I think it's point eight. I mapped it at some point, but where his eyes were found, the best route to get there would have been to cross that lane. Hmm. And and that and, there's been some rumors about Lund Campground, and I'm not sure if they've been checked out or what. But um, you know, there's just been some questionable characters in that area, I, and yeah, yeah. There's a miner there. I know. Okay. I honestly don't know the full details. I just heard that. The guy was a miner, and he knew about Michael walking up and down that trail. Instead of walking all the way down to the main entrance where the road is, or the driveway is to get into one, mm-hmm. there's a trail that you can cut across, and it goes on the backside of one into the actual campground. Okay. Um, that route would have been easy, and I heard that he took that route from other people. You heard that he took that route, like, at that time, at 4 a.m.? Oh, no, 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 not that time. No, no, no. Um, that... When he was first out there, I believe I heard that he was, he went to that campground, but he took that route. Hmm. So based on, uh, you know, what you have, you have a lot of information, you know, terrain wise, uh, location wise. And I know that you've been hanging out with the family a lot and there's, you know, we know this is an open investigation, so you can't say some things. Yeah. So based on what you know so far, I mean, if you had to guess... What do you think happened to Michael? Yeah, that's a hard question. Um, yeah, uh, just going through everyone's, you know, statements of 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. I hate to say it. In my opinion, too, it almost sounds scripted. It really does. Um, just from the outside perspective, it does sound scripted. Everyone's stories are the same. Mm-hmm. 4 a.m., 4 a.m., 4 a.m. And then when that other person on the podcast last night. Kier- right? Kieran. Yeah, Kieran. Yeah. Um, when they said, they saw him walk away, and then 20 minutes after, that would make it around, I think they said, what, 3.30? Yeah, he's, I think he said 3.30 is when uh, Ashley came over and told him. Yeah, so if I, if you ask me what happened to him, if I used both theories, yeah, he walked off, kept on that time, wandered off, his items were find, found by the river, but they were actually there, we just, both, 100 people were blind and didn't see him, and one guy on the road saw him by miracle. And yeah. he actually took that road out, and he went along that side of the river somewhere. He's over there. If it's foul play, I think that the items were placed there, and he was moved. He's not anywhere a pobo. Yeah. He's in another town. And that's my opinion. That's my two scenarios, and I don't know which one to believe. Well, and the thing for me, too, uh, so, like, okay, his stuff is found, right? And not him. If it's not foul play at this point, like, I, I can't really think of a situation where, if it's the thing where he purposely walked away, he needed space, he either had a mental break, or he yeah. just, something happened, I don't know, he needed to start over, that's a theory, right? So, why would his belongings be thrown a mile from the campground if he decided to just walk away? Well, I can tell you now that where his items were, there's no way to throw them across the river. Or t- why would, you know, why would his items be anywhere except for with his person 
if it yeah, was exactly. not foul play, if it was just, if it was just, he just needed space or he had a mental break and he's wandering around and has no idea who he is, why would his items be there? It just. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I'm so baffled. It doesn't I mean, fit. I myself a million questions like, why are they there and where is he? It's amazing how this case has brought people together that would have never connected otherwise. It's one of the reoccurring themes of Michael's story. This next interview is with a guy named Carlton from Washington. He reached out to me several months ago and told me that he had experience in searching for missing people and that he had some thoughts on Michael's case. We messaged back and forth, and after our first phone conversation, I asked him if he'd be willing to do a formal interview for the podcast. I found his take on this case to be new and fresh, and he offered a lot of relevant information. My dad was uh, part of uh, various search and rescue teams growing up from Colorado and and Utah. My dad was a a master diver, so he did a lot of water recoveries and water search and rescue. So uh, growing up with him, was able to, you know, be out on a couple, you know, calls for missing people as a kid being at like uh, the base camp um, while the teams were out searching and, you know, just tagging along with my dad uh, for him to, you know, teach me, you know, what he knew and all different aspects of life. Uh, And uh, how, you know, how I kind of got into um, this quasi private search and rescue uh, group that me and friends have put together uh, was the Patty Krieger case. What really kicked it off um, me and some friends, we were going out for a day hike uh, one day, me and about four of us. And we stopped by the Rockport store to get, you know, to get some snacks and stuff. And uh, Dave, who uh, owned, the, owned the Rockport store that worked there, is like, hey, you know, there's a, there's a missing gal up on Sock Mountain. Since you guys are, you know, going out in the woods, you should, you know, go up there and, and lend a hand. Yeah. So, you know, because everybody up here knows us, you know, as being some pretty... Uh, hardcore backcountry guys from gold mining and gold prospecting mm-hmm. and you know, skiing and snowboarding and mountaineering and stuff like that. So we're pretty well known as like some of the go-to mountain guys up here. So we were like, all right, yeah, let's, you know, let's do it. So we, you know, we cruised up to Sock Mountain and they already had, you know, um, that was the, the day after she went missing that evening. Um, and they already had the command center set up and, you know, search and rescue teams were out there. Friends and family were out there and, uh, you know, we showed up and we were totally geared for, you know, being in the mountains was dressed accordingly, had all the appropriate gear that any search and rescue technician would carry on them. And then some, and, you know, volunteered, volunteered to, to search and <clears throat> was turned away since we weren't official search and rescue people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we went and did our, our day hike. And, you know, after three days, they canceled the search. The family continued it. And I don't know how, but uh, someone dropped my name to the family and was like, hey, you should talk to this guy to help you. So the son, Alan, he, you know, reached out to me and was like, hey, we know we need some uh, mountain guys who are, you know, know the mountain, know that area and uh, know how to, you know, be out there and not get hurt. Would you be willing to come and help us search for our mom? 
So, you know, we, we were like, okay, yeah, we will. And I had a friend who was an active duty Army Cavalry Scout down in uh, JBLM. So he came up and we spent about a month on the backside of the mountain. We built a lean-to shelter and stocked it full of supplies and scoured that mountain for, you know, Patty, the son, and some of his family members came out to um, to help and, uh, you know, didn't find anything at all. And then stuff about, you know, her boyfriend started coming out. He was pretty notorious and it started to look like, you know, on the family's end that it might've been more of a criminal nature. Wow. Yeah. And, and she's never been found and there's no leads on, you know, where she might be after 10 years. Wow. That's crazy. And then there's been a few other people who've, you know, gone missing in 2018, there was those snowboarders that went missing on Baker. We would go and go up and search on our own account when we had time to do it. Pretty much just stay out of search and rescue's hair and just do our own thing. But government agencies, they have a lot of limitations on what they can actually do, how long they can stay out there, you know, how many hours in a day can they search, you know, what areas can they go into that would be deemed too dangerous for you, even though you believe that you'd be fine. If they deem that it's too dangerous, then you can't go out there. I don't think that you should put any limitations on your ability to, to, to do whatever is necessary to bring that person home. You know, the one thing, you know, about us is, uh, you know, we don't get hired by the family. You know, the family, you know, don't give us money. Right. Um, and even when, you know, even when we have been offered money, um, it's it's really hard to take it. Sure. You know, so most of the time, you know, what they'll do is, you know, they'll either one, allow us to set up a GoFundMe to be able to get the resources we need to keep us out in the mountains searching for their love. And a lot of it is just straight out of our own uh, pocket, you know, our own expense. Right. And But, uh, you know, that's that's the price you got to pay to, you know, to, to do good in the world sometimes. Yeah, totally. So I want to talk about lost person behavior and um, kind of some things that you that you noted in listening to the podcast and hearing about Michael's case. And so I just kind of wanted to hear what, what your thoughts are on that and, and how you thought that that was uh, related, if at all. So lost person behavior is based off of a, a national index of missing person cases. And uh, Robert Poister and another guy called uh, William Styro Truck back in the, you know, in the seventies, they started compiling all this data of people going lost in the, in the wilderness and putting them into categories uh, to be able to, you know, create a behavioral pattern that statistically would help you be able to figure out where the person you're searching for would be. Okay. And, you know, you have uh, lots of categories. You have, you know, children, old people, hikers, hunters, and each category uh, has different statistics for each one, you know, where the person was found within a certain mile, you know, certain radius from the last point that they were seen. Some people will, you know, tend to, some groups will tend to go up in elevation versus going down in elevation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, so that's where that is get, get gets compiled from. And then, you know, they put it all in a, in a book format, they even have an app on your phone that you can go and search up all the cases, you know, not the details of the cases, but just, you know, statistics of that group. Like the stats. Of that category. Right. right. Um, okay. So that gives you, you know, something to start with. And when you, you know, when you start uh, 
you know, your search operations plan, you know, the first thing you, one of the first things you do is you, uh, you, you have the family fill out a lost person, uh, questionnaire. And that has like all the basic info, you know, height, what they were wearing, any you know medications they might be on, how they would react in certain situations, you know, were they determined individuals, were they a fighter or a flighter, things like that. And then once you have that, mm-hmm. Then you go to, you know, lost person behavior, find their category. Uh, some people might be within uh, multiple categories. And, you know, that's the the thing about Michael's case is, you know, I mean, we can place him within four or five different categories. Whereas, you know, in like the Samantha Sayers case or the Rachel Lackaduck case, you know, that would be a strictly hiker category. Right. So you would, you know, base your operational plan just off that category. Um, Whereas in Michael's case, you know, like I said, he could be within four or five different categories. I've put him in three categories as the the top three to base the operational plan off of. Okay. What, uh, what three categories does he fall under? Uh, the three categories that I would put him in, the first one would be the camper category. And that's, you know, people who go and, you know, they car camp. So most all their gear and the supplies are in the camp at the car, usually multiple people there around. So that would be the very first category that I would, you know, start my search operations plan based on. Okay. And then, and then, you know, the other Two that I would put them in because from what, you know, I've been able to listen to in your podcast and pick up on the Facebook uh, pages would be mental illness mm-hmm. and substance abuse. Okay. The and, and I'm giving that an order of, you know, highest likely category to least. So, okay. yeah, to give you an idea of, you know, the b- behaviors of, let's say, these three different um, categories. So in camper... The distance that, you know, the person was found alive or perished because they don't give us that data if they're found or alive or deceased. So from, you know, the IPP initial planning point or, you know, the last point seen. So in a mountain, temperate mountain area, 25% were found in 0.1 miles. Uh, 50% was in 1.4 from the last point seen. Okay. So if we go to if we go to mental illness, we'll find that fifty percent was within one mile in a temperate mountain uh, area. Okay, so a little bit closer. A little bit closer, and if we go to substance abuse, we will find fifty percent are zero point seven miles, uh, and then if we go to let's say, so you know, but when you start going through a lot of the categories. Um, you do start seeing that overall distance of what human beings just kind of do or stick to in whatever category that they're in. You know, mm-hmm. they're all relatively pretty close. Um, but then you have, you know, the extreme um, cases where people are found 11 miles, 20 miles away from the last place they were seen at. Wow. And what kind of categories look at that type of range? Uh, hikers, hunters are mainly, um, the ones who really go off really far. Uh, okay. and that's because, you know, a lot of times they feel com- confident in their navigational skills, confident in their backcountry skills and attempt self-rescue. That's another right. thing. A lot of people who try to attempt self-rescue are found further away. 
than people who are just like, I'm going to sit here until I'm found. Yeah. So there are, you know, lots of different variables that you use and put together, you know, in lost person behavior to try to, you know, give you uh, a good idea of how this person, coupled with the lost person questionnaire, you know, what this person would do in the situation. You know, it's, it's, it's always your best guess. Right. And at least it's the best guess based off of what statistically people in that same situation did. Right, right. So then there's something to base it off. That's really interesting that you said um, it was 0.7 miles because that's exactly how far his belongings were just found by search and rescue just within the last few weeks. So uh, that really, uh, yeah, that really sticks out to me. Yeah. And I'm not really sure what to make of the um, items that were found. You know, that's kind of a weird wrench that was just thrown in here. But um, all I heard was that they found some of the some of the things he was wearing and it was within a mile of the camp. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty much all I've heard on, you know, what was found. Yeah, they're not releasing um, exactly what was found, like what specific items, but um, they did release the exact location that it was found, um, which was 0.7 miles west of the campground. Okay. uh, Which would be actually closer to home, you know, for Michael. Um, Yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting. I really don't know what to make of that in a search and rescue perspective either. Like, is that a common, did that, does that happen? Do they find people's items without finding them often? Yeah. Really? Yes. Um, and it happens, it happens, uh, a lot. Um, and you know, and it happens a lot where the areas that they initially searched and didn't turn anything up, they, you know, they, the person's belongings or their remains are found exactly in that same area. Okay, so that wouldn't shock you because that was something that the parents, you know, I've spoken with with a couple different people, the parents, the drone guy that's been really active and said, you know, is there, do you think that that stuff was there beforehand? Like, has that always been there? And they, they said no, <laughs> they didn't think so. Yeah, I would, I would lean more to, to yes. And a couple, uh, you know, one case, and we spoke about this when we first talked, and that was the case of Aaron Hedges um, in Montana. Yes. And he, you know, he went missing um, September 5th of 2014. So they, you know, they start searching dozens and dozens of search and rescue people from each county, you know, looking for sign of the guy and, you know, couldn't find him. Another two days pass, they're up there searching again. They find his boots. His boots are found placed perfectly underneath the tree. They find a campfire pit where it looked like somebody had a fire. Um, they found a waistband off of his backpack. And, uh, you know, so and that, that was four miles from, uh, you know, when he left from the last place he was seen. It was still, they found his shoes. Nine months passed by. Jeez. And uh, another hunter ends up finding a backpack with a handgun in it, Aaron uh, Hedges' uh, hunting tag and hunting license, his bow, call out, search and rescue, search and rescue comes out, find nothing. Then another nine months pass by and some hunters or some horseback riders are riding up the trail 
and they're you know a little bit off a trail going through the brush and one guy looks down and sees a skull unbelievable so they report it search and rescue comes back out you know they find the skull they find remains they find bits of his clothing and determine hey this is aaron hedges unbelievable um you know there's no evidence of foul play there's no reason to believe there's foul play is this human error Yes. Insane. So it just is absolutely possible. And it doesn't seem like it from the outside. You know, I feel like it's easy to say on this end, like, how could that happen? You know, that's it's yes, it is human error, but it's actually it's just that's kind of what the terrain is like. It's it's hard. It is. Yeah. I mean, you can, uh, you know, if it's spring, summertime, all, you know, all the deciduous trees and plants are, you know, all in bloom. Yep. And then come fall, winter, everything's died off. And th- that's where they could be laying. And you could have walked within a right. foot and never would have seen their little piece of gear or maybe their body. Yep. Um, you know, it, it happens. And it happens quite a yeah. lot. And in a missing person's case, especially one where it's like, well, how do you just get lost? How do you just vanish? Right. You know, I deal with this all the time. I dealt with it in the Samantha Sayers case, you know, the Rachel Lackaduck case, you know, the family asked me all the time, you know, like, how can you just vanish without a trace? You know, no trace um, that you were ever really there. And, right. you know, the family and even myself included starts to go into, well, it's got to be a different explanation. It's got to be foul play. It's got to be criminal. It's got to be paranormal, you know, or are aliens picking these people something, up, you anything. know, like, I mean, sky's the limit on how far yeah. down the rabbit hole you want to go, but then you gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta take a Absolutely. pause and take a breath and be like, no, this is just the nature of the wilderness. You know, it is brutal. It is unforgiving. You know, mother nature will swallow you up and you will never be found forever, you know? Absolutely. And yeah, it seems to be a lot more common than I I thought I wasn't really looking into it until, you know, this case kind of sparked that for me. And it's really alarming, but it's actually happening yeah, a happened. lot. A lot of people are missing in the wilderness. Yeah. It's it's weird and it seems like more, but it's dangerous and it's it's harsh. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, something that we talked about previously that I thought was a really interesting tip was the uh, bird's nest thing. So I kind of wanted to talk about that again. I think that um, I think that's a really interesting tidbit. Yeah. And where like where'd you hear it? Well, um, I actually never read it in a book or heard about it. I, it was just something that dawned on me one day searching on the Patty Krieger case. Um. This was like, man, you know, if I was a bird, you know, uh, human human remains could be a really good thing. It's a resource, you know, because when we're out there, we're always looking right. for resources. The, I'm looking for, right. you know, water. I'm looking for shelter. I'm looking for food. I'm looking for, you know, resources out there. And all the animals are doing the mm-hmm. same thing. So, you know, that, that, that's, you know, that started it, you know, pretty much of like, Hey, yeah, start checking bird's nests. Cause hair, you know, I, I witnessed it around my house uh, a lot. You know, I got a German shepherd and she sheds all the time. And, uh, you know, so I mm-hmm. see the birds always out, you know, picking up her fur on the ground. Um, cause that's where I, you know, uh, brush yep. her and they're picking up the fur off the ground to take to their next nest for insulation. 
right and it's genius um, i mean it's it's kind of it's kind of genius yeah so it's like well man you know if you're a lot of outdoor uh, clothes have you know insulation uh natural and uh, man-made materials that are great for insulation our hair is great for insulation absolutely yeah, so it makes perfect sense to check to check bird nests and and see yeah. what's up there. Um, any type of nest. Yeah, I told um I told Randy the drone guy um too. I told him about that because you know with the drone sometimes it's harder to get down underneath the the tree. The canopy. You know, it's not a canopy yeah. right now as much because it's winter, but you know it's still kind of treacherous to uh, fly in there. But as far as overhead for some of those birds that do you know, uh, higher up nests, I, I think he might have a, a good opportunity of seeing that stuff. So I mentioned it to him and, and he thought that was really interesting too. You never know when that can be where your first piece of evidence is that will lead you to where they are at. Mm-hmm. I, I heard that they, I heard that search and rescue went back out there and searched. They did and they didn't find and anything. They, and they didn't find anything, but no. you know, how far? How far out did they? You know, did they? Did they push? Um, let's yeah, say, I don't know. Let's say hypothetically that uh, it was his shoes that were found. You know, so he shed his shoes at you know point seven miles. Well, you could probably go another point seven miles and find something else. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, so how far? You know, how far out did they expand? Um, you know. Based off of that, me personally, I, you know, I would have tried, I don't really know the terrain down there, but, you know, after finding that within point seven, I would definitely at least, you know, I definitely push out to, you know, the, the three mile radius, um, you know, based off of resources, terrain, you know, weather right. permitting. Um, but yeah, that's definitely interesting, you know, cause I mean, it's right there in that 50%, uh, you know, uh, of being found um, within that 0. 0.7, one mile, you know, to find his right. belongings within that is, you know, is a huge indicator, you know, that he's he's out there and he's close. Yeah, I hope so. I know that was really hard for them to uh, to find that stuff and, and still kind of feel like you're coming up empty handed. Yeah. But, um, I, you know, I just, I think that that is a one step closer and it is a, a good step in the right direction and telling us that we're, you know, we're close and keep looking like it's not over. And, and this change of season, like you said, is a big, uh, is a big opportunity here. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I reached out to Parrish, you know, offering our services and, you know, letting them know that Jared, you know, they, they wanted to do a a joint effort where they wanted to go and, you know, do some side sonar scanning and some of the rivers around there and the creeks um, while me and my team, you know, worked the land because that's our specialty is their, you know, specialty is in the water Uh Um, and just kind of, you know, try to, 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 to knock off as much uh, terrain, you know, as possible. And that, you know, that's one of the things with me, I got some people on my team, you know, who go out and they go out and I've had volunteers, lots of volunteers who come out and, you know, they're like, this is the day we're going to find them. This is the day we're going to find them. And then we go out there and we bust our butts and search, you know, search all day long until we are just wrecked. 
with nothing, not a trace of gear, evidence, anything. And you come back so demoralized, you know, and I'm just seeing people just break down crying, you know, thinking, yeah, this is the day we're going to find them. And these are strangers, you know, to me and to the family and to the missing person. And, you know, me, how I deal with it is, is, you know, my win is clearing ground, you know, being able to say with 100%, which is a lot of work to say, you know, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, like a half acre is 100% 100%, cleared. It's a lot of work. That sounds really hard. Um, You know, but yeah, but that's my goals when I go out is, you know, is when we don't find anything, okay, well, I know that they're not here. And the more I search and the more I clear this area, then I move on to another area where they can be. You know, there there are a few resources for families like the John Francis Foundation. You know, they try, they do a lot of help because David Francis, he found that his son went missing um, in Idaho, uh, wasn't found, search and rescue search, couldn't find him, couldn't find him, couldn't find him. So he finally hired some, uh, some private search and rescue people to go right. and search. Uh, and they found him uh, that following year. Um, and then, you know, and it was the same thing with for David. You know, once the search was called off, the family was left to figure all this stuff out by their own. Um, and so he started, the you know, the John Francis Foundation to be able to have those resources, have that insight, help, you know, with counseling, with dealing with, you know, the, the loss and, you know, resources for finding canine teams and hiring search and rescue people privately to continue the mission. Cause the family's mission is, never ends until their loved ones found. Um, and that's what really launched me. And that's what really launched me into, uh, you know, I met David, Fra- I flew up on the Vesper peak with, uh, David Francis, um, for the Samantha Sayers case. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he was so impressed by, you know, my logs, my operational plan, um, and everything that, you know, cause the family requested them to come and take lead of the family's search efforts. Um, and when he showed up, you know, and, and we, we met, we had a meeting with the family, you know, he wanted to see all the areas that I've searched and, you know, see what, me and my team has done and what the area that we covered and stuff that he was so impressed with it. He, that day he told the family, he's like, yeah, what you need to do is, you know, make, you know, Carlton, your search operations manager. Yeah. Um, cause you know, he actually really does know what he's doing, even though he has no formal training at all, but you know, keep him on the, put him on the lead and run with it. And, uh, and the, you know, the dairy family was like, all right, we're going to follow, we're going to follow that. We want you to, you know, be our guy, bud, and, and, and make this happen. So, you know, I, I pretty much quit my job and, uh, you know, lived off of what people were donating, um, through, you know, the go, the go fund me and just, you know, put a good three or four hard months into, you know, just trying to, you know, find their loved one and, uh, you know, and it didn't pay off and, you know, it, might not ever, but, uh, you know, as long as they're out there, you know, searching for their loved one and I know it's, you know, kind of died down as the years passed by, but still, you know, every summer me and Kevin and a few of our people, you know, still go out there 
and uh, and search and look because yeah. you never know when you might be out there and yep. and be in the right place at the right time. You're not going to find her if you're sitting on the couch. You, that's right. Exactly. And I think that's exactly what we need to keep doing with Michael is, uh, you know, yeah, just keep getting in different places at different times and hope that at some point it's the right combination. Yeah. Because, yeah, I, I don't think that it's impossible that he's out there, um, you know, very close to where we've all been and and you know we've had dozens of of search parties out there but that's uh that doesn't mean anything in these situations so and have you done a um a work a workup at all on michael's case just in your own research i mean i know you put him in some categories and you were able to do the mileage um but have you have you done some of that stuff you were just talking about with for michael's case on your own i've put together uh, a hypothesis um, I haven't put together an actual search operations plan, um, but I definitely did, you know, draft up uh, a hypothesis on, you know, what probably took place in that scenario. And, and you know, and this is all based off of, you know, what I've gathered from the Facebook pages, um, you know, your podcast, Facebook pages, you know, whatever information I could find right. publicly, um, you know, which could be which probably has a lot of, you know, missing details in it too. But, you know, generally and overall, based off of what I have gathered as far as evidence and information, you know, I really do lean more to, you know, he walked off, you know, and and he's out there versus, you know, something bad happening to him and somebody trying to cover it up. Both of those guys have a unique perspective on this case. Randy has been immersed in the physical searching and put in hundreds of hours searching by drone. He was a stranger that, because of Michael, became a friend and a key player in this search. And like so many, Carlton was captivated by Michael's story, and he reached out to me to offer help in any way that he could, even if it was just a phone call with some of the information that we just heard, but possibly much more. It's discouraging to continue to search for Michael and come up empty-handed especially for those out there with boots on the ground month after month. But like Carlton said, every time we come home empty-handed, we can find peace in knowing that we are slowly marking off all the spots that Michael is not. We aren't giving up, and with each new piece of information that falls into place, we're clearing ground. Next time on Nowhere to be Found... So the only casing that we know of um, is the one that we found up by the Bohemia Saddle Road, and it also was right next to a glow bracelet. I got a phone call um, from a gentleman that was driving and said that he is fairly certain that he found some items of Michael's. There's a handful of people that, um, that either know exactly what happened or what transpired right before it happened. We've been asked how our listeners can contribute to the show, so we set up an account with Patreon. Check out the link in our show notes if you're interested in supporting our cause. You can also find it on our website, nowheretobefoundpodcast.com.